Well, if not for the popularity of the book Unbroken, which later became an um, amazing movie, you would likely not even know the name Louis Zamperini this morning. After growing up in Southern California, uh, Zamperini uh, was slated uh, and had qualified to run in the 1936 Berlin Olympics. In fact, he was on the cusp of being uh, the first male athlete to break the four-minute mile. But World War II interrupted that dream, and instead of chasing Olympic glory, he found himself uh, serving as a bombardier on a B-24 Liberator that was flying over the Pacific well, on one of those missions, uh, they would be struck by enemy fire. The plane would go down, crashing into the middle of the ocean, and then Zamperini and his buddies would barely endure a horrific 47 days on a raft floating at sea, only then to be captured by the Japanese and taken to a prisoner of war camp near Tokyo. If his suffering weren't enough already, that's when Zamperini's suffering would literally become hell on earth. Because there Zamperini was in the midst of being sick and starving, and he would begin to face ruthless torture at the hands of a prison guard nicknamed the bird. The bird beat Zamperini savagely daily. But with small acts of defiance, Zamperini was able somehow to preserve his dignity and persevere. But then he learned that if Japan were to surrender, uh, or if the camps were about to be liberated, the strategy was to kill all of the prisoners. This kill order made it very difficult to continue struggling through suffering because even if he managed to survive the illness and the starvation and the torture, he would likely be killed before he could be rescued. I need to know Zamperini was not a religious man at this point in his life. I think it was recorded that he did utter some foxhole prayers, but he really took no prospect in the promise of a heavenly reward, which makes it even more incredible to me that throughout such, such horrific torture and suffering, he, he was sustained by an irrational hope. It was a hope that somehow he would just simply return to his parents' home in Southern California. Hope really is a remarkable thing. Hope allows most to endure even the most difficult of suffering. And with that in mind this morning, we jump back into our study of First Peter. We, we've been looking at Peter's letter to the exiled believers in Rome. Now, these early Christ followers were living out their faith in really severe persecution at the hands of the emperor Nero. And because of that, Peter writes to offer them uh, spiritual strengthening and, and encouragement throughout their intense suffering. And so understand clearly, Peter writes this letter to press into the hearts of his followers and his, his, his hearers that, that by living in an obedient, victorious life, especially under stress and suffering, a Christ follower can actually evangelize a hostile world. That was Peter's goal, to press in uh, that, that even in the midst of living through suffering, we have an amazing opportunity to evangelize. And so here now we find ourselves 
as followers of Christ thousands of years uh, later, and we're in similar circumstances. Now, I want to be careful not to make a direct correlation for us as 21st century believers and those in the early centuries, what they were facing, because uh, it, it was markedly different, no doubt. Uh, make no mistake, the persecution and torture they were facing for simply being followers of Christ, most of us will never see or experience. But we as Christ followers must know, and I would argue from today's text we're going to look at, even embrace suffering. See, Jesus himself told us that in this world we what? We will have trouble. It's not a maybe, right? We most certainly will have trouble. And so far in this First Peter series, we've seen a few truths. One of those being that when faith gets difficult, we can stand firm. Now, I don't know if you fully embrace and believe it, but it's true regardless. That when faith gets difficult, we can stand firm. Why? Because the same spirit that raised Christ from the dead dwells in you. He has placed it in you and I. He's given us everything we need. We've also seen that suffering rarely feels good, but suffering does bring good. I could give you testimony after testimony of that, even in my life personally. Never feels good. But man, when you're able to look back and go, wow, look at what God is doing. Look at what God has done. And look at what this has produced. It brings good. If you've got a copy of God's Word, whether bound or electronic, I would invite you to turn with me to 1 Peter chapter 4. We're going to look this morning at the front half of the chapter, and if you're willing and able, I invite you to stand with me in honor of God's Word this morning. 1 Peter chapter 4, since therefore Christ suffered in the flesh, arm yourselves with the same way of thinking. For whoever has suffered in the flesh has ceased from sin, so as to live for the rest of the time in the flesh, no longer for human passions, but rather for the will of God. For the time that is past suffices for doing what the Gentiles want to do, living in sensuality and passions, drunkenness, orgies, drinking parties, and lawless idolatry. With respect to this, they are surprised when you do not join them in the same flood of debauchery, and they malign you. They will give account to him who's ready to judge the living and the dead. Verse 6, for this is why the gospel was preached even to those who are dead, that though judged in the flesh the way people are, they may live in the spirit the way God does. The end of all things is at hand. Therefore, be self-controlled and sober-minded for the sake of your prayers. Above all, keep loving one another earnestly, since love covers a multitude of sins. Show hospitality to one another without grumbling. As each has received a gift, use it to serve one another as good stewards of God's varied grace. Whoever speaks is one who speaks oracles of God. Whoever serves is one who serves by the strength that God supplies in order that in everything God may be glorified through Jesus Christ. To him belong glory and dominion forever and ever. Amen. Father, we ask that in these moments you would open our hearts to what you have for us. Holy Spirit, I would ask that you could do what only you can do to turn hearts and minds 
towards your word this morning. Father, would you allow me to simply get out of the way so the message that you have for us, the hope that we can have throughout suffering and even leverage our suffering in order to serve faithfully may resonate in the hearts of all who hear. And Father, for those who are far off, would you draw them to you this morning in the hearing of your word. We pray in the name of Jesus. Amen. You may be seated. Well, many of you have heard it before, but let me remind you uh, this morning what C.S. Lewis said regarding pain and suffering. He says, pain insists upon being attended to. God whispers to us in our pleasures. He speaks in our consciences, but he shouts in our pains. It's his megaphone to rouse a deaf world. Yet even knowing what God wants to accomplish in our pain, we do everything we can in our power to avoid it, don't we? But what if in our constant avoidance of pain or in our lack of desire to walk and learn from our suffering, we're missing out on what our heart truly desires most, and that's to know God and know Him intimately. And what if as we walk through suffering with God, And as we grow closer to his heart, he actually in those moments reveals to us the ministry that he longs for us to have. See, don't miss this big idea this morning. Suffering offers us a choice, whether we will suffer and sin or whether we will suffer and serve. There's a choice that has to be made. Now, I understand suffering at times can be so overwhelming and so huge in our lives that it overshadows our view of who God is. But Scripture and the promises of God would remind us over and over again that He is bigger than our suffering. He is sovereign. He's fully in charge, and He is fully good. You need to be reminded that everything you will experience either comes from God's hand or passes through God's hand. This is God's active and passive will, as Calvin calls it. And may we, like Joseph, who was able to say to his brothers, what you meant for evil, the Lord planned for good. Well, what is happening in my life may not be good right now. And in fact, it may most certainly be evil by all accounts, but God is good and he is with me and what he has planned and purposed for me is good. And so God uses suffering for our good and he wants us to use our suffering in order to serve others. So let's look at some challenges from our text this morning. The first being this, in suffering, don't go inward. But look upward. Peter sets before us at the beginning of this section, Jesus as our example in suffering. Well, that ought to give us all pause this morning because we know Jesus' story. We're very familiar with Jesus' suffering. Now, praise God, Jesus is our substitute. He he suffered in our place when he took our sin upon him on the cross. But beyond Jesus being our substitute, he is also our example. He shows us how to endure suffering and to serve others with it. 
So Peter says to us, think about the magnitude of Jesus' suffering in comparison to yours and learn from it. Learn from his example. Richard Warmbrand was a pastor in Romania who took a stand for Christ in the 1940s in a devoutly communistic and atheistic country that absolutely forbade Christianity. He was known to go and preach at bomb shelters, and he was active in rescuing, rescuing the Jews during World War II. As a result, he was imprisoned and tortured severely by the communist regime of Romania. In regards to suffering, he wrote this, I've accepted this proposal. Christians are meant to have the same vocation as their king, that of cross-bearers. It is this conscience of a high calling and of partnership with Jesus which brings gladness in tribulations, which makes Christians enter prisons for their faith with the joy of a bridegroom entering the bridal room. In essence, he's saying we look upward to Jesus, the creator of the universe, the sustainer of all things, the savior of the world, the perfectly innocent one, the son of God. And we see that he chose suffering as his vocation. And then he calls us as his followers to do the same to take up our cross daily and to follow him and in doing so to find real and to find true and to find everlasting life. Now, none of us gathered here this morning can even fathom walking the road of suffering that Jesus walked. And praise God, we won't have to, but we will have to walk our own road and suffering will be a part of it. And make no mistake, suffering is painful. And if you're in your suffering, you turn inward, your suffering will be helpless. But there is another option. If in your suffering you turn upward, then your suffering becomes hopeful. See, Peter lays out for us theologically that that in our suffering, we're actually being sanctified. We're being made more like Christ. But that sanctification process requires our participation. Much like in Romans chapter 6, we're reminded that that we're now born into Christ. Our, Our old self was crucified with him so that we would no longer be enslaved to sin. See, it was in Christ's suffering and in his hanging on the cross on our behalf that he has freed us from our sin. But the passions of the flesh are still very real. But those fleshly passions must be crucified daily and brought under the lordship of Jesus Christ. Now, some of you may still be struggling with sin and even say, but Todd, I I have prayed. I have prayed that the Lord would take it away. I have prayed that he would free my addiction to alcohol, or I have prayed and asked that he would take away my desire to look at pornography. Some of you have prayed and just asked God, would you please take away my desire, but with a caveat, make it easy and painless. Would you just do it really quick-like? And please don't ask much of me in the process. 
as if we just rub the lamp and, and the genie just grants our wish. But listen, Christ follower, we don't defeat the snare of sin without suffering. Think about when an addict wants to break the habit, right? Whatever that may be. Check themselves into rehab where they are entering into a process of, of detox, where they will suffer greatly through the breaking of that addiction. There is a process and there is an end goal, but that process involves much pain and suffering. Let me tell you this morning, there is no easy path out of sin towards godliness. That road will be marked with pain and suffering. But if you're a follower of Jesus this morning, your, your new life after your conversion is not meant to be lived according to your flesh and your fleshly passions. You've got a new governing position, and that's the will of God. And so turn your eyes upward this morning, and when faced with the choice, choose suffering, because if you don't, you will likely choose sin over and over again. Get the thought in your mind and the purpose in, in your heart that Christ is worth suffering for. The process is worth it. Secondly, I want you to see that in your suffering, remember your new identity. I don't know if you've discovered that when suffering and hardship come, there's this strong temptation to pull back and just simply go back to the way things used to be. To go back to the way of life where we thought it was better. Our body naturally recoils from pain. Our mind processes suffering and says, hey, this can't be good. This can't be the right path. And what may seem right and feel right is to just go back to where you came from. But Peter makes such a simple and remarkable statement. You remember what we read? He said, the time has already passed. The time that's passed that's been sufficient for your sin. In other words, it's enough. Don't sin anymore. Suffer if you must, but don't sin anymore. If you sinned a little before you were converted, then that was enough. If your story is you sinned a whole lot before you were converted, that too was enough. Peter says, arm yourself with this thought. The time that you've spent sinning is sufficient. Make the break. Choose the will of God and suffer for it if you must, but don't go backwards. Remember your new identity. And then he gives us in our text some categories. Did you see him? It wasn't an exhaustive list, but he challenges us to individually identify the trappings of our sin for the purpose, purpose of destroying them. So let me give you some questions to think about. In the area of sensuality, where do you lack restraint? He mentioned passion. What evil desires continually dominate you? Drunkenness as a category, where are you prone to addiction? He mentions orgies. What, what sexual sin entraps you? He says, drinking parties. What, what social sins this morning are ones that tempt you? And then he even mentions debauchery. What, what grotesque things are you fond of? And then lastly, he speaks of maligning. 
Are there anyone that you enjoy hurting, speaking ill of, wishing ill will towards? And see, the question he's going to ask us this morning is, are you, as a follower of Christ, seeing victory in these areas? Can you honestly say, I've had enough? I've been down that road enough to know that I don't want it anymore. You're here saying, I know it's wrong, but I, I, I do really want more. I want to go just a little bit further in my sin I like the taste, and I need some more. Peter's going to say, haven't you had enough? In light of who Jesus is, have you not had enough? Is your desire this morning for God greater than your desire for sin? I think about what Peter will write in his next letter in verse 2. Or chapter 2, verse 22, he says, uh, quoting a proverb, what the proverb says has happened to them. The dog returns to its own vomit, and the sow, after washing herself, returns to wallow in the mire. See, the sad reality for all of us is we are far much more alike to the dog and to the pig this morning than we'd care to admit. In all my time serving in Nicaragua, in La Trudeca, the dump was open and people were living in the dump. The Busbees would actually go and try to rescue kids. And they've got two rescue homes and take them out of the dump. Inevitably, kids would sneak out and run away from a home where their meals are provided, where education is, and they would run back to the dump. And he would always say this, Todd, you can take people out of the dump, but you can't take the dump out of people. There's got to be a supernatural transformation that takes place for us this morning, or much like the dog and the pig, we'll just keep going back to the sin patterns of our life. But let's remember this morning, God has given us a new nature. He's given us a new identity in Christ. 2 Corinthians 5, 17, therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is new. He's been made new. The old things have passed away because in Christ, all things are made new. And and hear me clearly, this isn't just getting cleaned up on the outside. This is an inward transformation that takes our very nature and identity and conforms it to Christ And as we're transformed on the inside, that then begins to spill over to the outside. So Christ follower, remember who you are in Christ this morning. A statement that I taught our students for many years in regards to this that I hope you will find helpful as well. Where do you say, I've given my life to Jesus and I'm just not able to do that? Fill in the blank. I've given my life to Jesus, and I'm not going there anymore. I've given my life to Jesus, and I'm not going to participate in that, look at that, think that, speak that. I've got conviction that my identity has been changed. See, the lifestyle of a follower of Christ is a sober, godly living as a condemnation of the values of the world. And Peter reminds us that the watching world will always be stunned when Christians don't live and think and act like they do. 
They'll always go, what, what, is, what, what is wrong with you? What is going on? Why do you think that way or talk that way or, or live that way? In fact, Peter reminds us it's actually offensive to them. It's offensive to the world. But over and over again in your life and in my life, we will be challenged to decide, are we going to go with the world or are we going to go with Jesus? And make no mistake, that's a fork in the road. There's no middle ground. And verse 6 reminded us that one day we'll stand before Jesus to give an account for our deeds. And where the church and the Christians and the culture were wrestling in this time is culture was looking and say, well, look, it all ends the same. Everyone's going to die. And Peter says, absolutely. But there's something that happens after that. There's life beyond this life. And so what looks like a similar ending for all humanity, where we will certainly face physical death, there's a greater spiritual reality for those of us who are in Christ. For in the coming judgment, those who are in Christ will never be more alive than even you are today. Third thing this morning, in in suffering, let me challenge you to turn towards community. Have you found that when you're suffering, you're tempted to retreat from others? Kind of pull back, go into uh, isolation? Let me encourage you to fight that temptation. And instead, let me challenge you to go in deeper into community. Those that have love for God and love for others, let's remember that the essence of the Christian faith is community. It's community and love for God that we are able to have, and it's community and love for one another. But I understand walking the road of suffering is humbling. I know it's incredibly hard for us as self-made, independent humans to actually say, I need help. I need someone In this section, we see really three important responses uh, to suffering in the context of community. The first thing he shows us is consistency in prayer. Uh, Peter tells us uh, about our prayer life, that we should literally be in our right mind to be sober when it comes to prayer. See, there's something about living in the world, the way that we live in the world, that tends to put us out of our mind. The world and its allure is intoxicating. We get caught up in the world in such a way that it puts us out of touch with the reality of spiritual things. And if you're drunk with the pleasures of this world, if all you can give yourself to or think about are the pleasures in this world, then I can assure you, you will have no taste for heaven and no desire for prayer. See, and the reality is in order to fight worldliness and to walk soberly through suffering, we need each other. I would strongly commend to you finding a community group or a small group here at Wildwood, connecting with a pastor or an elder who can walk in community with you or find a mentor for accountability. And remember what a privilege it is for us to walk with a brother or sister who is suffering and to walk with him with a consistency of prayer. Think about Jesus, even at the peak of his suffering in the garden, he he could have handled that on his own. And I get the disciples didn't kind of hold the standard he was hoping, but he takes them with him and he says, brothers, we have got to pray. Would you enter into this with me? In my moment of suffering, would you stay here with me? Will you pray with me? What a privilege to have consistent prayer. For one another. Second thing we see is this presence of love. Peter says, fervently love one another. This agape love here is commanded because love isn't a feeling, love is a decision of the will that leads to action. 
And he says this love is quick to forgive. It's quick to overlook because we as Christ followers, we realize just how much Christ has forgiven us. So as we relate in community, of course we're going to forgive and reconcile. This community would be marked by heartfelt affection for those that we've come to trust and cherish. But it's done with intentional care and attention. See, love doesn't become fervent and earnest through neglect and distance. Friendship and trust and affection only grow through time spent together. It weaves our lives together with one another when we spend time walking with one another, praying with one another, loving one another in community. Because now when you're hurting, guess what? I'm hurting. I'm hurting with you because you're hurting. I don't want to love and support and encourage. And God may be calling you to cultivate that kind of love with some people this new year. Third thing we see is rather interesting that Peter says, hey, there ought to be community that's marked by hospitality and homes. It's amazing to me that a book as weighty and spiritual as First Peter is, we read such a simple and practical command. Open your homes to one another and do it cheerfully because it's the hallmark of community. Oh, we know that we're all called to steward the gifts that God has entrusted to us, and our home is one of those gifts. But to understand it culturally, what it meant to open your home in biblical times where there were no hotels, very few inns, meant to invite somebody in was to really say, hey, you're family. Hey, we've got room. Even if we don't, you're coming in. And if you have needs, we're going to meet those needs. To welcome someone in uh, was this mark of hospitality that said, hey, we're in this together. Hey, my resources, they're your resources. If you have need, I'm going to give. And I'm going to give, and I'm going to give because that's what we do in community. Something happens when you go into someone's home. It's really, it's, it's really the doorway to the heart, isn't it? All right, we've got to hustle. In suffering, number four, don't neglect your ministry. This is kind of everything that Peter's driving to here. Do you know that the majority of the ministry that takes place here at Wildwood isn't done by the pastors or the staff? Actually, that is a big amen. (laughs) It's done by you, our faith family. The, 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 The role of all of us is to give our lives to serve. One of our axioms around here is just simply this, every member a minister. Do you believe that? Are you living that? out. See, our text this morning says everyone has received a gift. Every Christ follower has been gifted to serve, and we're to live as stewards of the gifts that God has given to us. And your purpose in suffering is to then take the gifts that God has given you to serve. Why? So that the church can be built up, so that the mission of God can advance, and ultimately God would be glorified. And you know what I've seen? Suffering people often have the most powerful ministry. You'll have insight into areas that others may not have. For years and years, our Life Hurts, God Heals ministry, one of our axiom theirs was this, every scar tells a story. You know, God wants to use your scars to tell your story, to help and to encourage and to serve others. God doesn't ever waste a pain. Don't waste your pain. 
Let me encourage you, don't neglect ministry opportunities while you're suffering. You've got a story to share. Allow others to minister to you while you minister to others. And I would say to you this morning, really the goal isn't necessarily to be healthy or strong or have it all together. Really the goal is just be available. Be available and see how God will use you even in the midst of your suffering. Because when you see yourself as a steward, you live your life differently. The goal isn't just to get married, have some kids, have a nice house, make a lot of money, retire, drink drinks with an umbrella in it and play some shuffleboard. God has you here for a reason, for a ministry, and he will often take you through the fire in order to refine you and sharpen your skills for ministry. So we view suffering rightly. It's preparation. It's empowerment so that we can serve in ministry. Think about Paul, the greatest missionary and church planner the world has ever seen or known. He was afflicted with what we only know from Scripture as a thorn in his flesh, some sort of persistent suffering. Multiple times he prayed to God, please remove it. Take it away. And logically, this makes sense, right? God, take this away so I can be more effective. And God's response, what? I've given this to you so you'll be more effective. I've placed this in your life so that you would know, Paul, my grace is sufficient for you. My power will be made perfect in your weakness and suffering. God's power is on display through our weakness, and it's seen so clearly in our suffering, and that should compel us to serve. I think this was so visible in the life of the Prince of Preachers man by the name of Charles Haddon Spurgeon. I love Spurgeon. In fact, I was able to take a whole class just on him uh, in seminary. He started preaching as a young man, as a teenager in England, and through a mighty move of God's spirit, he saw this tiny congregation at the Metropolitan Tabernacle grow to around 5,000. He often preached up to 13 weekly sermons. And mind you, that was prior to electricity or audio amplification. On top of his preaching and pastoral ministry, he established and oversaw a host of ministries, including a pastor's college, the Stockwell Orphanage, 17 almshouses for the poor and elderly women, a day school for children. He was involved in the planting of 187 churches. In print, he published some 18 million words, selling over 56 million copies of his sermons in nearly 40 different languages. And that was in his own lifetime. That was the visible side of Spurgeon's ministry. But behind the scenes, Spurgeon had significant emotional suffering. He battled incredible spiritual warfare, severe bouts with depression, and physically battled painful gout. All of those things nearly overwhelming him at times. His whole ministry was marked by critics. At one point, it got so bad that in one of the large gatherings where he was preaching, someone came to one of those meetings and yelled fire. And as you could imagine, chaos ensued and people were running for the doors. Seven people lost their lives being trampled. 28 people severely injured. As a result, it took 
Spurgeon, six months. He took six months off. He could hardly sleep and he barely recovered from that. His mind was never the same, yet he persisted in ministry. When I think of all that he endured, I can't imagine how he made it. But you know what? He did so with a friend by his side in community, his wife, Susanna. She faithfully stood by his side as an encourager. She even finished his autobiography, but her life was marked by suffering as well. She suffered severe medical issues, endured a botched surgery, and spent much of her adulthood as an invalid. She often experienced such intense seasons of pain that she could barely even move. Yet her determination was remarkable in the midst of personal pain. The endurance and the resourcefulness she brought to her husband's side. Uh, She really had a holy hustle that reminds everyone, no matter what your circumstances, you can make a difference for Jesus Christ. Both Spurgeon and his wife used suffering to compel them into greater service for the kingdom of God. Will it for you, my friends? Suffering is meant by God to actually have us open our hands, your hands that hold so tightly to your pleasure, your hands that hold so tightly to your comfort, to, your thing, to things in your life that aren't God's will for you. Suffering is meant to pry open your hands so that you'll let go of those things. And with those very hands, take up the work of serving the kingdom of God. And this only happens through the dramatic, transforming grace of Jesus Christ. Let's pray. Father, we thank you as odd as that sounds, for opportunities you give us to actually walk through the road of suffering. Doesn't always make sense to us, especially in the moment, but we trust your sovereignty and we trust your good plan for us. And Father, if this morning we could learn from Peter's words and rightly see our suffering as opportunities to serve, I can't imagine what you could do through a faith family like this here at Wildwood Church. When we rightly see our stories, the stories that you are still redeeming, and not turn inward, but to actually look upward and outward for opportunities. God, may that be true here in this faith family that you would use us in a mighty way to serve. May our lives be marked as followers of Christ with such radical devotion, with such a difference in the way the world lives because of the transformation that's taken place in us. We know we can't do that on our own. In fact, that's why we'll even come to this table in just a moment to declare our great need for the power of the Spirit to be at work in us. Thank you, Jesus, for the work you did in suffering on our behalf to pay the price for our freedom and to show us an example of how to suffer well in order to serve. In your name we ask these things.